Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on our unblushing theme, Ruby Slippers. This is the full-on rainbow. The entire show, recorded live, exploring stories of being in someone else's shoes. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. This summer, we are following the yellow brick road with tales told live, without notes or inhibitions, in the walled yard of the old Idaho penitentiary. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. Now, we'll discover if the shoe fits with our host, Beth Norton, and our featured storytellers, Larry Chase, Rachel Baxa, and Jinx Jenkins, intermixed with a community story slam. There's no place like late night. There's no place like late night. I am Beth Norton. I'm the host and director of this show, and I'm pleased and honored to be here. Um, How the show is going to work, I'm going to tell a short story, and then I'm going to bring up our first featured story. These are, um, this is someone who has been working on their story for weeks now with input. We have three featured storytellers tonight that we are going to intermix with story slammers. Um, If you would like to be a slammer, if you'd like to tell a five-minute story on our theme, Ruby Slippers, Uh, stories of being in someone else's shoes. You can drop your name in the Dorothy basket over there with our lovely volunteers and come up and tell your five-minute story. One exciting thing that's different about tonight is we are going to choose not one but two uh, slammers to move on to our Slammer of the Year show. That's going to be our show September 27th. So if you do put your name in the basket, and you tell a great story, and me and Patty like you, we might pick you. And we will announce that at the end. So, yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Um, no presh, no they say. Um, okay, I think that's, that's all of my announcements um, and all of my jokes um, for now. Except this little belt here, that's nice. <laughs> You gotta like poke your belly out a little bit so it doesn't fall through though, you know? Does that look dumb? Okay. Oh, you wanna take a picture of it? Okay, cool. Okay, this is the last joke, I promise. Did I mention there's no beer or wine? (laughs) Someone say road trip? That's rude. Take a road trip. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, All right. When I was eight years old, I wanted to be, surprise, surprise, an actress. And my Aunt Sarah, who I was living with at the time and who's here tonight, um, knew this and entered me into a community theater production of The Wizard of Oz. Now, this being my first play, I was naturally convinced that I would get the lead. I don't remember auditions, but I will never forget the day when my aunt told me that not only did I not get the part of Dorothy or the Cowardly Lion or even one of the witches, but that I would be playing Munchkin number three and a gargoyle. A gargoyle? I didn't even know what a gargoyle was, and I think that's what angered me the most about it. The gargoyles were the flying monkeys, but we call them gargoyles. A flying monkey. I was quite honestly offended. Um, um, uh, 
Uh, and my disappointment only grew when I saw the script. I had one line, and it was um, when Dorothy arrives, as a munchkin, when Dorothy arrives in Oz, house and all, and um, you know, creates quite a stir, and all the munchkins come out, and the munchkin king hasn't quite gotten the munchkins quieted down yet. And in a, mutter, uh, a string of munchkin mutterings, um, I ask, who is she? Who is she? Who is she? They practiced a lot. <laughs> uh, it turned out that like all the eight and nine-year-olds were munchkins and gargoyles, and then all like the 10 and 11-year-olds were Emerald City dancers and poppies, which to be quite honest was the only other part I didn't prefer. And then it was the older teens that got the good parts. Um, we were responsible for our own costumes, as you are in community theater. And um, my aunt had thrift shopped this adorable pink vest. Um, and we attached a little pink carna carnation boutonniere. And we all wore bow ties and a lot of blush and pink lipstick. Um, for the flying monkey costume, we cut up a brown sheet in shreds. And we put it over. Um, a sweatsuit where we sewed little ears made out of shoulder pads onto the hood. It was the 90s, so. You were supposed to wear like a neutral color sweatsuit, like black or brown or gray, but I believe I already had a blue, a blue suit, so not only was I a flying monkey, I was a blue flying monkey. Um, um, but even though I was super angry about having these roles, I was determined to get as much stage time as possible. So the Flying Monkeys came out for their solo dance twice, and we were supposed to rotate who was in front, and I ignored that direction, and every time went directly to the front. Um, <laughs> and there, the pictures are great. My hands, I have the most active hands and a contorted face, and I am just like really selling that Flying Monkey role. Um, I continued to ignore blocking cues for my munchkin part as well. Um, and you can see that in the pictures. Um, whenever like any, you know, any of the main characters were up front in the stage, the munchkins were supposed to be in the back, but always there I was, like shoulder to shoulder with Dorothy, if you'd imagine. <laughs> there was like a, you know, one scene where like Dorothy and Toto are crawling around on the ground and their faces are right right on either side and then there's munchkin number three <laughs> in the middle. Uh, my aunt said that she knew that I knew every line to the play because the whole time I was on stage, I mouthed them. Uh, now, if I were to put myself in like the director's shoes, <laughs> um, um, or the stage manager, oh my God, what a nightmare I was. Um, what a nightmare child. Um, but I don't, you know, being a kid, I don't remember, um, I don't ever remember any adults. I only have one memory of like one time when like the flying monkeys was the culminating scene and there were, the flying monkeys were in the back and this is when, you know, things are really, this is the, the, the culmination, Dorothy's about to throw the water on the witch, things are really going down up front and the flying monkeys are out there and I'm not out there so I go to go out there and the, you know, stage manager woman just gently is like, oh, it's okay, you don't need to go out there, scene's almost over and I was like, oh no, I'm going out there. So you can see in the pictures, there's like, you know, drama happening in front and there's like one little shoulder pad ear sticking out and then in the next picture, it's like, 
it's like the Wicked Witch and Dorothy and the Tin Man and then like a blue flying monkey <laughs> up in the back. Uh, and so that was the only time I ever remember like an adult kind of trying to hold me back. And um, I have so much gratitude for their patience in that because um, as I said, this was my first play. And at this point, I had been through more than most um, eight-year-olds. I had been uh, severely abused. I had been abandoned by my mother. I had been sent to live with relatives and abused again and put in foster home after foster home. And finally, I was back in my place of birth. I was back with my Aunt Sarah, with whom I felt loved and safe. And I was on a stage where I could feel seen and express myself. And because of that experience, still for me today, there is no place like this home. So, it's So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being here and witnessing. Um, and I was going to tell that at the end because it's very hard to tell a vulnerable story and then look you all in the eyes afterwards. Um, but um, I'm very excited to bring up your next storyteller. You probably know him. Um, he's been on over 35 boards, he says. <laughs> and he's just one of those guys who um, is a well of history for Boise, and we are very honored to have him tell a story tonight. So please join me in welcoming Larry Chase. Thank you very much, Beth. And thanks for all the beer and wine we had earlier tonight. <laughs> Good evening. From 1969 through 1976, I was a TV weatherman at Channel 2. I wasn't a meteorologist, I was a TV weatherman. So I would take what the National Weather Service gave me and then I would repeat it. So it was a no-stress job. If the weather was wrong, it was their fault. I wasn't forecasting the weather, I was just repeating what the experts told me. Now, we've been kind of hot around here lately, but I'm going to take you back to the time of August of 1971. We had 10 consecutive days of temperatures 100 degrees or higher. Yes, in 1971. Here at the prison, if you happen to be visiting or incarcerated, the temperature on the upper tier of cells was 118 degrees. There was no place for the inmates to find shade or to get cool because the prison authorities had found two escape tunnels. So they decided to lock everybody down. It didn't take 10 days for the inmates to get really upset about this. And so there was a riot. And during the riot, there were two buildings set on fire and two inmates were stabbed, one fatally. The inmate that was stabbed fatally, there were three people involved, three other inmates. One named Danny that did the stabbing, one named Bill that had hit him, and one named Ron that had lured him to the gymnasium. All three pled guilty, even though Ron and Bill said they didn't know that Danny was going to stab him to death. So 
They all got sentenced, but it was various times. In uh, August of 1975, I was still doing weather, and I had been doing some volunteer work at the prison. I opened the morning paper on an August day of 75, and the headline was, Escaped Murderer on the Loose in Boise. Well, I wanted to read further because maybe I had met this inmate during the time I had done some volunteering. And sure enough, I recognized the, the name. And as you read the story, you found out that he was actually on work release and he had walked away from the job that he had. And he was a minimum security inmate. It intrigued me why he had done this because he didn't have that much more time left. I went into work and that very same day, a lady came into Channel 2 and she asked to see me and she introduced herself as inmate Bill's girlfriend. And she wanted to tell me a story as to why Bill had left. I said, sure, but I'm a weatherman. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll send you over to somebody in the news in, uh, later on. And she said, no, she just wanted to tell me the story. And I said, okay. So as it turns out, the murder that occurred in 1971 never really ended because inmate Danny had changed his mind that he really didn't want to plead guilty. He was trying to get a new trial. And the previous month, he had gotten a hearing to see if he could get a new trial. Inmate Bill was asked to come and testify to what he had done in 1971 during the original killing. They said they would reduce his sentence and they also said they would keep Bill and inmate Danny apart because we all know what happens when somebody tells on somebody else in prison. People don't take kindly and the word is snitch or rat and nobody wants to be one of those. The hearing takes place. Danny does not get his new trial. Bill goes back to prison. Danny goes back to prison. And the authorities come in and say, you know, we told you that once you testify, we're gonna reduce your sentence and we're gonna keep you two apart and we're gonna move Danny to another prison and we can't do that. We're, you're both gonna be in the general population. But we talked to Danny and he said, it's okay, he's not gonna hurt you. <laughs> and Bill said he'd been to three county fairs and two circuses, but this one was a new one on him so he started giving away all his prized possessions, all that you can have in a cell, and he starts saying goodbye to all of his best friends. And a week later, he walks away. That's what happened. And I told Bill's girlfriend, I said, that's a great story. I said, uh, you know, I think you ought to tell all the local media, I'm a weatherman, I wear weatherman shoes, but I want you to go ahead and uh, tell as many people as you can. Here's my phone number if you got any questions about how to approach them. So now we're gonna jump to the next Saturday. I'm home playing with my one-year-old, my four-year-old, and the phone rings, I answer it, and a voice says, uh, Larry, this is inmate Bill. I said, oh, how are you? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm fine. He says, uh, I wanna give myself up. I said, I think that's a great idea. The paper is calling you an escape murderer, and uh, I don't think you've got much of a chance being out here. He said, okay, but there are three conditions. I said, well, what are your conditions? And he says, one, I don't want to be charged with escape. 
Two, I want to be transferred to the Oregon prison. And three, I want to be allowed to be in their culinary program because that's the field I want to get into when I get out of prison. I said, that sounds great. I said, why don't you call a lawyer, call your... He said, I don't want to talk to a damn lawyer. He said, I've had it with lawyers. They promised me that they were going to keep me separated. They promised me my sentence was going to be reduced. I said, okay, how about somebody at the prison? He said, I don't trust them either. I said, well, you're going to have to find somebody that can do this negotiation. He says, I only trust you. I said, I'm a weatherman. I've got my weatherman shoes on. He says, he says that's it. He says, if you don't do it, I'm not going to give myself up. I said, okay, give me a couple of hours. Call me back in a couple of hours. He says, okay. So what am I going to do now? What would Henry Kissinger do? He was a great negotiator. Let me think about this. I guess I could go on TV and say, tomorrow it'll be mostly sunny with a chance of surrender. And see if anybody buys into it. Finally, I remembered that the Attorney General for the state of Idaho, Wayne Kidwell, lived not too far away from me, and I had met him once or twice when he came through Channel 2. So I said, okay, that's worth it. So I, I pick up the phone. And you remember in those days in 71, the phone book was this big and everybody's phone number was in it? Piece of cake. Call Wayne Kidwell at home. Hi, Wayne. This is Larry Chase, the weatherman. And we met once when you were down at Channel 2, and I've uh, got Bill who escaped, and he wants to give himself up, and he's got three conditions. Wayne said, where are you? And I, I, I'm at my house. He said, can you come to my house and explain this? So I did. And I gave him the entire situation, and he said, you know, Last year in California, there was a case that we're all using as precedent now that if an inmate escapes from prison or walks away in fear for their life, they will not be prosecuted. He said, so I think he's on pretty solid ground. I said, great. He says, give me an hour and I'll call you and let you know. He said, I do want to talk to the Ada County prosecuting attorney. I said, okay, great. So I go back home, Bill calls. I said, I'm not ready to help you yet. I'm going to get the attorney general to call me, and maybe we'll have good news. Call me back in a half an hour. Okay, fine. So about 15 minutes later, Wayne calls, and he said, I can't get a hold of the prosecuting attorney, but I used to be the Ada County prosecuting attorney. I think this will work. It, it sounds very, very reasonable. Let's have him give himself up right away. I said, that sounds like a great idea. So the phone rings a few minutes later, and it's Bill. I said, Bill, we got it all set. I said, you're going to give yourself up. You're going to get all these things that you wanted, and it's all going to end peacefully, and isn't that great? And he says, I'm not sure I want to give myself up today. I said, now, do you, this was your idea. It wasn't mine. I wear weatherman shoes. I put on my negotiator shoes. I got this deal done, so you need to give yourself up. He said, I'll call you back in 15 minutes. Okay, fine. So I play with my kids, I do a few other things, and then the phone rings and Bill says, okay, it's a deal. And I said, okay, great, let's go ahead. Okay, all right, I'll meet you at six o'clock at the Ada County Courthouse, right across the street from the Capitol building. That's where the jail was, and uh, we'll meet at six o'clock. He says, okay, good. All right, I'm getting these things done. I wonder what my boss thinks of me doing all these things. 
I don't think it's in my job description to negotiate as a weatherman. So I called my boss. He said, I'll have our attorney call you. I said, okay, it's a done deal. I hope he doesn't say anything bad. So he calls me, the attorney does, and he says, no, things like this have happened before. And I said, to a weatherman? He said, well, actually, to a newsman. I, okay, what do, am I okay with this, with, with the company? And he said, sure, sure, it sounds just fine. I said, okay, great. And the time was moving. So it was getting to be about 5.30, and Bill was supposed to be down there. Oh, oh, one more step. I better do this because I do also work for the television station, and I hang around the newsroom. They won't give me a desk to sit there, but I hang around there. So I call the reporter, Tim Storrs, and I say, Tim, we're going to have uh, uh, Wayne Kidwell at the uh, courthouse, and the inmate that escaped is going to give himself up to Wayne because it wouldn't be good to give, give yourself up to a weatherman. It wouldn't make a good story. Okay, great. So we get down there. It's a few minutes before 6. Wayne Kidwell is there. I'm there. The newsman is there. We're going on. No bill. Six o'clock comes. No bill. I see a car go by. I see the car go, same car go by a different time. The car actually goes around the block and lets Bill off, I guess because the person that was driving didn't want to be recognized. And sure enough, here comes Bill. And he walks right in. And all the sheriff's deputies, their eyes are about this big. And there it was. Bill got everything he wanted. The attorney general got Bill, and Tim got an exclusive news story. And I got to go back home and put my weatherman shoes on. Thank you. Yeah, Larry Chase. Thank you, Larry. See, I was feeling riot vibes in here. All right, you guys ready for your first slammer of the evening? Woo? <laughs> you guys ready for your first, are you ready for your first slammer of the evening? Yeah, all right, coming to the stage, I'm not looking, is Andrea Wilson. Ow, ow. Come on down. I thought I could read it. Okay, I'm Andrea, and uh, the time that I got to walk in someone else's shoes. Happened pretty much as soon as I had my first child. Um, I really thought we were ready. I had been a very responsible young woman. We, were, we, we planned on having our child. I did the uh, crunchy granola birthing class, the lactation class. We were ready, but I was not prepared despite having taken the class for breastfeeding. I knew it would be hard. People complain about it all the time. Might be painful, time consuming, but I thought it was pretty much like instinct for mammals. <laughs> like you can open zoo news and see a gorilla breastfeeding their baby. So I figured, you know, it can't be that hard. Um, so I was going to do it, and I did. And uh, my t we took my daughter to her very first pediatrician's appointment, and they said, she's lost way too much weight. How's breastfeeding going? 
Well, this is what I do, this is how often I do it. Well, what does letdown feel like? What does it feel like when your breasts get full? And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And she said, that's, that's an issue. Uh, so they had me feed the baby, and then they weighed the baby, and then they, f I mean, sorry. They weighed the baby, they had me feed her, and then they weighed her again immediately after. She wasn't getting anything from me. And so the doctor told me that I needed to supplement. And um, so despite having taken the, the lactation class, I knew nothing about bottle feeding. All I knew about bottle feeding was, you never want to do that. As soon as you do that, your baby will never want to take the bottle again. I mean, take the breast again. And uh, so I didn't want to do that. I got this thing called a supplemental nursing system. You put all the formula in a little tube. But this was after I called a friend because I did not know what I was supposed to do. And uh, she said, well, I have some breast milk that I pumped earlier here in the fridge at work. Would you like to have it? And I did not know that that was a thing. <laughs> um, and it took me all of two seconds to go from not knowing that that was a thing to f saying, yes, absolutely, I'll feed my baby somebody else's breast milk. <laughs> and um, it was in that moment that I realized, am I going to get a light or something? OK, thanks. Um, it was in that moment that I realized that um, I can't assume that I know what I'm going to do in any given situation until I'm in that situation. A lot of the judgment that I had about other people, you know, what kind of mom I was going to be, um, really flew out the window in that moment. I proceeded to go to La Leche League meetings. I took every supplement that was available on the market, fenugreek, the lactation cookies, the this, the that, and the, the lactation consultant insisted that I would be able to do this because I'm a mammal. Um, I went to a La Leche League meeting and I found out about a medication. It was called Domperidone, not to be confused with Dom Perignon. <laughs> Um, it has an, it's allowed in Canada, so all these women at La Leche League were having it shipped in for them. Here, it's for a condition that I didn't have, and it's not intended for producing lactation. That's actually a side effect. So people would, um, adoptive mothers were shipping this in from Canada because they were able to breastfeed their adopted babies. It was so special. Men were taking this and were lactating. I took this. Nothing happened. And I was like, how on earth? I mean, I thought this is just a mammals thing. I should be able to do this. And that was when I realized that, you know, if a gorilla in the middle of the jungle couldn't bring in a milk supply to feed their baby, I'm not going to hear about it. I'm not subscribed to the email newsletter for La Leche League for Gorillas. <laughs> and then I thought about all the women all over the world in remote villages that don't have access to formula. And what do they do? Well, they hand their baby off to another mother. 
that will feed her baby along with theirs. And um, so that's when I learned what it means when they say it takes a village to raise a child. Um, I also then thought about that mom that's sleeping in the car with her child. What kind of mom would live in a car with her kids? Well, somebody that's terrified. <laughs> like this situation is better than the one they were in. That's when I learned what it meant to say, desperate times call for desperate measures. I had never experienced a situation where suddenly I was able to see that I can't imagine what it's like to be in anyone else's shoes at any time. And that I can't judge people until I've walked in someone else's shoes. And so yeah, it took my friend saying, wanna give your baby my breast milk? And me going, huh? Okay. To, to teach me that. It was a frustrating situation, um, but my daughter was primarily formula fed. I'd sprinkle in some of other women's breast milk whenever I had the opportunity. And uh, she's smart, strong, beautiful. Apparently, breastfeeding is not the end all be all. Thanks. Right, Andrea Wilson. Wow, if you weren't thirsty before, <laughs> feel parched. I feel like we just um, got like a little black market breastfeeding info. Is that, do you feel like, yeah? Everybody's like looking up La Leche later, I'm gonna go to Canada and get a supply of milk and dang, uh, the underground, the things you don't know when you don't have kids, right? Um, um, thank you for signing the, uh, as you see, Andrea is at our Story Slammer booth, setting a great example for what you do. You go to the, you go to the booth, the Oz, and you sign your life away, um, and you rights to this story we're telling, so that's part of it. And, um, yes, these are live stories, told off-note, personal stories, um, so thank you, Andrea, for taking that, that first plunge with us. If our next featured storyteller could make her way down to the mic, I will stall a little bit. That's you, Rachel. Yeah, there you are. Yes, please join me in welcoming Rachel Baxa. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're cool. A little higher. No, uh, uh, no, oh my God, it's okay. Oh my God, you're freaking me out. I'm a people pleaser. Hi, uh, my name is Rachel, and uh, and I'm an alcoholic. And the first, <laughs> I see you. <laughs> and the first time that I had to say that, I thought I was gonna die of rage. Uh, I grew up with a mother who's an addict, and um, she left for the first time when I was three months old, uh, and for the last time when I was nine months or nine years old. Um, and in between, she'd sober up. Uh, meet some guy who'd come home with her and tattoo himself at our kitchen table or some glorious shit like that, um, the wheels would inevitably fall off and she'd be gone again. Uh, she was a teen mother and the product of the long and proud backwoods southern tradition of child abuse. And um, whatever she was or wasn't, though, I find myself even now wanting to explain her to you. 
to, to tell you what a monster she was um, and to tell you how wonderful she is, uh, to tell you how much I hated her for a long, long time and how much I love her, how I love her so much that I can smell her still right now standing here 1,786 miles away. Whatever she was, she brought me into this world furious and noisy and loud and determined to be anything else. Anything but a mom who could leave her children behind, anything but a woman who always needed a man, and anything but my mother's daughter. The day that my son was born, uh, he made these incredible little growling noises. And I don't know if you know this, but like, no matter how full your belly gets in this life, if your mom wasn't around, there's always this mother hunger. It just rumbles inside of you and it never really stops. And the first time that my son made those hungry little noises, hungry noises that I could feed, I felt pretty determined that he would never feel the mother hunger himself, that he would never even know that it existed if I could help it. So I turned my life upside down. I turned my living room into a Montessori school. I bought miniature everything. I stayed up all night reading all of the parenting forums and uh, learning about gentle parenting and, and how to talk to children and how to engage with them and trying to breastfeed, which was also a nightmare for me, so kudos to you. Um, and it was all right until it wasn't until I was 27 and suddenly found myself the single mom of an 11-month-old and an almost two-year-old. And I was on my own and all my little mommy issues just started to bubble to the surface. By the time that I was 30, it was time for me to sober up. Uh, which in and of itself is a beast, but um, at that point I was fucked financially um, and career-wise, and so I was about to lose my car. I was in the process of losing my house, and uh, pretty much the only thing I had left was that I had not destroyed these children's lives. And um, so I made the hardest phone call that I've ever made. I called my terminally right ex-husband, and I asked him if he would take the kids. Just for a little while, just for a minute, like there was an apartment on the horizon, I could see it, someone was gonna let us be their roommate, it was gonna be great, someone was gonna loan me a car, I was gonna find some money, I was gonna start waiting tables, and it was gonna be fine. Um, until the first apartment fell through. Um, and when I found out that the first apartment fell through, I stayed in bed for three days. And during that time, I called my mother. And I told her what I had done. And I felt incredibly ashamed. And she said to me, don't let the despair get to you. That's what happened to me. Now, I had worked big girl jobs, and I had all of this bright, shiny promise, and I had read Maria Montessori's book, so that was not going to fucking happen to me. <laughs> Except that it already was. Except that I was couch surfing and waking up at 5 a.m. to drive this van that someone had loaned me to Meridian to pick up my kids and take them to McDonald's for breakfast with like the $7 that I had in my pocket, and then driving them to school so that I could see them, and then going home and sleeping, and then coming back and getting them after school and keeping them for an hour or two, and then taking them back to their dads, and then driving to Boise to wait tables until 2 a.m. And I would do my best. I would wake up on Saturday mornings, and I would walk up to their father's house, their father's door, <laughs> and I would knock on this perfect little red door with a perfect little wreath, and I would look like something someone stepped in. 
And, uh, and I would step inside their warm home and like his new wife is like one of those scentsy people. There's always like, like it always smells really good in there. Like she's like baking a pie or something and I am not that person. And everything is in its place and everything's organized and there's like this giant canvas printout of their wedding photos on the mantle, like right as you walk in. And my children are holding their hands and, and I am a failure at this point and uh, I would sh keep showing up and they would show me their new shoes and their new toys and all the things I could not do because all I could do at that point was get out of bed and show up and drop them off and wait tables and just try to keep showing up. It was all I had. I didn't have a damn other thing and on Saturday mornings I would pick them up and we would go down to the river and we would pretend that the banks next to the river were an enchanted forest. And we would find mirrored panes of glass and we would make wishes in them and there would be wishing mirrors. Or we would find like a little cement wall and, and we would pretend that like goblins had left messages for us. And this was what I had at the time. Um, except that I woke up one Saturday morning and I didn't want to go. I remember being a kid and waiting on my dad's front porch once for hours and I would not go inside and I waited and I waited and I waited for my mama to come and she didn't come you know and then that wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last time but for some reason this particular day sticks in my head and I suddenly understood exactly why she didn't come that day or any of the other days Right? Because when you show up and your hands are empty and it feels like maybe the best thing that you can do is shrink back out of their lives and let like the perfect little suburbia of it all scab over the wound that you have left. Like there's so much shame and so much fear there and you wonder if the best way to be a good mom is to just not be their mom. Is to let someone else do it, someone who can do it right. But that old mother hunger started to bubble up inside of me, you know? And I, I, I was suddenly filled with that despair. I didn't want to go, I wanted to run away. I was like looking at flights to Thailand, like I didn't care, I needed to get away. And um, I understood my mother for the very first time, you know? But I also understood my children. I also know what, knew what it would look like to sit on that porch, that perfect, perfect porch of that perfect, perfect life and not have your mother, your mother show up. And I don't know if my mother had not given me the gift of that deep, like bone liquefying mother hunger, I don't know if I would have stayed. I don't know if I would have gotten in the car and gone over there. And so the question is, you know, did everything she did to me make me feel, get me to the place where I didn't want to show up that day? Or did everything she do, did to me make me so that I could show up anyway, in spite of the despair, in spite of wanting to melt away? So I kept going to work and I had these, um, I would work these lunch shifts where I would bartend and, and occasionally my ex would bring the kids in to see me and they would order lunch and they would get to say hi and. One day my manager was standing there and my daughter tromped up to her. And she said, my mommy is working super hard so we can all be together again soon. I don't know if there are words to tell you what it feels like to have your child both announce that you aren't with them right now and 
also to be proud that you are going to get them back. And I couldn't make words come out of my mouth. And so I just looked down at these really crappy black boots that I would wear to wait tables because, um, and, and they were speckled with taco sauce and the, the, the soles were falling off because I had no money to buy any other shoes. And, um, and I stared at them. And the next day I went to pick up the kids and we went to the enchanted forest and we took off our shoes and we were squishing around in the mud. And, uh, and Georgia picked up those shitty boots <laughs> covered in taco sauce and they smelled like death inside. Uh, and she put them on and they came all the way up to her hips. And she said, see, just like mama. And I remember doing the same thing with my mother, whatever kind of mother she was or whatever sketchy motherfucker was tattooing himself at the kitchen table, I remember crawling into the bottom of her closet and pulling out her shoes and walking around in them and wanting to be just like her. And, 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 and more than that, more than anything else in the world, I just wanted her. So in May of this year, I celebrated three years of sobriety. And my kids and I moved into this sweet little one-bedroom apartment with a backyard that I continue to let get overgrown. Shout out to my landlords who are here, sorry. <laughs> with beautiful little sunflowers in the front yard and we dance in the kitchen. And my daughter wears my shoes and my son sings too loud and flails his arms around. And we sing this song and, and it's from a musical and it's really cheesy. Um, and the words are, you matter to me. Simple and plain and not much to ask from somebody. And my mother and I don't really speak anymore. Um, because it was impossible for me to be both her daughter and their mother. But I will never forget what she gave me by reminding me not to let this despair win. And I will never forget what she gave me by giving me the mother hunger that keeps me showing up for them every day. That was Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Whew. Wow, if we did have alcohol, we'd be selling a lot right now, wouldn't we? Um, thank you all for, for bearing witness to that. We are going to take a short break just so we can hear uh, the lovely Ran Randy Anderson come up, back up and play. Um, and you're welcome to curl into a little ball and cry. We'll see you in about <laughs> 10 minutes. Yes. Everybody, take out your phone right now and follow Randy Anderson on Instagram. Um, yeah, you can do that. You can do that right now. Take your phones out. Do that if you want to. Or just do it. Um, Randy, I think one, you know, one day, I don't want to like, you know, be like, oh, you're going to be famous one day because everybody says that, but, you know, but you could be. And one day you're going to look back on this night and be like, oh, remember that? Remember when I was playing on a fold-out table in a women's prison? <laughs> Wasn't that fun? I'm glad we could create this for you, this moment. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, do we have any story subscribers in the house? Give us a cheer. Give us a, yes, awesome big round of applause for our story subscribers. 
Those are our $25 a month donors. Um, you guys keep us going. Every story, if you are a story subscriber, um, you get a ticket to every single one of our shows. And what that means for the coming fall is that for the first time ever, we are extending late night into the fall. So late night is gonna continue um, October, November, and December at the VAC, yes. <laughs> Directed by yours truly. Um, so if you become a story subscriber between now and then you will get tickets to two shows a month So that's a pretty good deal um, And you can do that by again taking out your phones and uh, texting story sub to 44321 I'll remind you at the end as well story sub as in story submissive is how I like to remember it um, just Something to help you guys it's late night. Okay. All right. All right. You guys ready for your second slammer of the evening? Yeah, there's that energy. All right, welcome to the stage. Maylene Cavazos. I never wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to uh, travel and wear nice clothes. I wanted to have fun. And my mother and her mother were teachers. And when the sub list got ridiculously small and everyone was getting sick, my mom asked me to become a sub and I thought, okay, yeah, I think I can do this. This will be no problem. My mom's a great lady, and uh, she raised four children, and I figure I'm the oldest of three younger brothers. I can do this too. So my first day of school as a substitute felt like I was the camp counselor that the kids were going to overturn. <laughs> they were at camp, and I was the one holding them back from all of the amazing things they could be doing. I was used to wearing nice clothes. As a substitute teacher, you have to wear clothes that you know are going to get stained and possibly never able to wear again. <laughs> As a corporate IT person, I was able to have a rainbow or say that I could support different groups of people. And as a substitute, I couldn't have rainbow colors as a poster. As a corporate IT person, I had a $150 per diem expense account that I could put anything on. As a substitute teacher, a classroom chair broke, and the other teachers told me what they do is they buy it themselves. As a corporate IT person, I looked the eyes of people who were making 
six or seven figure salaries and saw them gloss over as I tried to explain something that probably was important to the many people they managed. As a substitute teacher, I get to be on the ground, crawling, playing with toys. I'm a pre-K, this is for pre-K. <laughs> That's a very big distinction. Um, playing on the playground and sliding down slides. And when I look those kids in the eyes, sometimes they say, I love you. I have never been more proud to wear the shoes of my mother and her mother. Thank you. Thank you, Maylene. All right, I am um, excited to bring up your next featured storyteller. Um, she's a good friend and an, an amazing performer. Um, and we're so lucky to have her here tonight. Please welcome to the stage, Jinx Jenkins. Five years ago, my father was dying. We didn't know it yet, but we knew. Um, he had had dementia for several years, and my mom, my mom, who had always kept his time together for him, had passed away a few years earlier. He'd started wandering away from home, and it was getting a little dangerous, and so being the youngest of three children, I decided it would be my job to move him from Ohio here to Idaho. I kind of always knew this would be my job. My brother and sister are both adopted, and they would joke with me that I was the only real one. Sometimes they would tease me when we were kids that my parents got to go into a room and pick them out, but they got stuck with me at the hospital. <laughs> so it kind of seemed natural that maybe I would take on this role. Um, my dad was absolutely thrilled to be moving out west. It was a big deal for him, and he would have done it in a covered wagon if you'd let him. <laughs> Even with his confusion, he was always one to make you laugh, always one to laugh at a joke, always one to remind you to laugh. And so in those early days when he moved here, we had a great time between visits to his favorite barbecue place and drives to Table Rock and endless stops at Wendy's for Frosties. We had a really good time, and he was excited about this new beginning. But I knew it wasn't a beginning. About a month after my dad moved to Idaho, he was hospitalized. And this time it seemed... <clears throat> a little more serious than just a mild confusion. He didn't know where he was or who he was, and it turned out that his kidneys were failing. I got a call in the produce section at Winco from his doctor telling me that it was actually end-stage bone cancer that had moved to his brain that was taking him down. I remember watching the water drip over the lettuces and thinking how cold it must be in that moment. They said that the pain of treatment would be a little too much considering his other issues. And I said I understood, and I hung up. 
I went back to the hospital right after that conversation and my dad was as alert as ever and excited to see me. We didn't talk about the phone call at first, but I drilled him on the questions that the nurses had trained me with. I asked him his name, he knew that. I asked him the year, 1986, not quite. <laughs> he tried again, 2015, we were getting closer. And then the final question, do you know who the president is? Oh, fuck. <laughs> My dad had always followed politics very closely and had always been interested in what was going on in the news. And now I had to tell this man, who for all intents and purposes had no clue, that Donald Trump was the president. <laughs> We both laughed. <laughs> then he got a little serious. <laughs> Eventually, we were able to tell my dad what was going on with his body and his brain, and he understood. And even though I could make decisions for him, I wanted him to know he was in charge. So I asked what he wanted to do, and he decided that he would just pray, which was something I didn't believe in at all. But we packed everything up at the hospital, including all the hospice pamphlets, and we headed for home. From there, things kind of did what things do in these kinds of situations. Um, I started getting calls from his assisted living facility that he had barricaded himself in his room and he was afraid someone was going to hurt him. And it was just a few minutes from my house, so I would rush over and I would calm him down and assure him that no one was going to hurt him, that he was safe. I would pat his hair while he laid in bed, make sure he had a glass of water on his nightstand, and his glasses were handy. Even when my dad lost the ability to speak because of the way his brain was affected, he would still communicate with me in ways I underst understood. Once when the uh, staff at the home shaved him into a mustache, a style he would have never worn, he greeted me with a little hoity-toity twist of his mustache. <laughs> And even though he couldn't talk, I knew what that meant. <laughs> I had a two-year-old at home, and the comparisons between the time that I spent with these two loves of my life was not lost on me. I spent a lot of time teaching, a lot of time explaining. I thought about my dad like a TV with an old antenna where the picture would come in clearly some days and then completely snowy the next. And on some days I could just make out in that snow some memories that he would explain to me of high school or his football buddies, his time in the army or his time in the FBI. I could just make out the pictures. Some days it would be incredibly clear, like just after the events in Charlottesville, Virginia, which was near his hometown, he was concerned and scared, and he asked me what was happening. I broke it down into small chunks. I explained to him, and then the static came back. 
but I was really grateful for that moment of clarity when I could speak to him and comfort him. It was during that time when my dad was silent and I was starting to rage that I found something in an old trunk in a photo album, a trunk my grandmother took to college with her that had been my coffee table, now returned to my dad, I found a manuscript with my mother's name on the cover. At this point, I was desperately lonely. I needed someone to tell me that this role I had chosen was my path, that this was right and this was what I was meant to do. And what I really needed was my mom. So when I found this book with her name, I knew it was something special. I opened it up and I started reading as my mother detailed her circumstances. Her father was now dying and it was her job to care for him like he had cared for her as a child. On each page she would tell a story of the way her father had cared for her and on the opposite page a comparative story of what she had done for him. She explained how her father had bathed her and taught her to ride a bicycle. And then she explained how she had worked to help her father wash his own hair, and then they learned to negotiate a walker together. She explained that he fed her and ironed her dresses after her own mother had died, and she kept him clean and fed him when he could no longer feed himself. I had watched her do this for her dad, and I knew I could do it for mine. But now, it was like my mother left me a manual, not just of how to be a perfect caretaker and how to walk in her shoes, but how to walk in my father's shoes as his child and now parent. I learned that all of the desperation that we find ourselves in and all the situations that we're not sure how to get out of, all those paths have been walked before. And sometimes we find those answers when we least expect it. It reminded me of a story that my dad and I would always laugh about. When I was about six years old, we were vacationing um, at a beach in Maryland, and we had gone for a long walk down an oceanfront highway where I had pleaded for him to buy me a pair of neon yellow jelly shoes. <laughs> Just begged. And through tantrum, he did buy those jelly shoes. I put them on immediately, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked. My feet were miserable, but I didn't want to complain because those neon yellow jelly shoes against my baby tan skin was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. But finally, my dad noticed. And he said to me, here, put on your old shoes. They might not be the ones you want to wear, but they'll feel right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jinx. Don't really have a, any more jokes. Um, 
I feel like we're past that stage. Although I did at one point during Jinx's set and be like, well, what's with all the deadbeat mothers around here? But not appropriate um, to say. So, all right, we're gonna do a whole just like slam, 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 bam, slam to finish out the night, all right? So you uh, might still be called, yeah. And then I'm gonna announce one lucky winner just one, not two, like I said before. One lucky slammer to move on to slammer of the year. All right, we guys ready? Ready for our next slammer? Yeah. All right, welcome to the stage. Oh. Lori Caravoo. <laughs> Lori, yeah, Lori, woo! Is there anybody walking toward me? No? Oh, there is. No, there isn't? There is. You guys, come on. Look around. <laughs> Everybody's a comedian. Is that person tall or short? I can start the mic adjustment now. Short? Very short? She's putting her shoes on. Lori, were you taking a nap over there? What's going on? I can see her now. Hey. Hi, I'm Lori Careview. I'll take care of you. I'm a special ed teacher. And I'm also, the reason why I'm a special ed teacher is because, yikes. Just breathe. Um, is because, what are you trying to tell me? Tell. Am I talking? Do I gotta be closer? There, is that good? Oh, sorry, I'm not used to this. Okay, I'm Lori Careview, I'll take care of you, and I'm a special ed teacher, so. This, I take care of you. And I didn't, um, you know, being ADD and a little brain dead, I come naturally to special ed, because I can make any kid laugh. So, on my whole, from 10 years on old, I just would do that, and everybody in the neighborhood wanted me to babysit, and it was great because I had some of those parents where, oh my gosh, you want to get out of the house. And I just happened to get out of the house with um, these actors that were in all these plays, so I got to feed them their play lines and babysit their kid, and chip his front tooth while I was taking him sledding. So, you know, I was a great babysitter. Everyone's fighting over me. She brings her own stuff. She cleans the house while, well, you always come home to a clean house when Lori's there. So, I, I misunderstood the topic tonight. <laughs> I thought it was just ruby slippers, and I thought, I have a great ruby slipper story. I never heard the part about someone else's ruby slippers. I didn't hear that. So I'm here to tell you about my ruby slippers and how I ended up in Boise from Moorhead, Minnesota. Yes, you're right. Moorhead, go! Moorhead, Moorhead, Moorhead. You get the picture. We Norwegians, we know how to have a good time, don't you know? <laughs> yeah, looks like snow. Yeah. 
Ay. Ay. I had this, uh, I had this great theme about teaching kids, and so I was like, I'm gonna be a special ed teacher. I was gonna be a PR person, but then you have to lie. I didn't know how to lie very good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is a great product, but what if it's not? I mean, then what do you do? So, special ed just fell into my lap because environmental science, I couldn't do the chemistry. And it's hard to pass chemistry when you're like me. <laughs> so I got accepted at BSU. I applied to Hawaii and Colorado. Am I not, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay, I applied to Colorado and Boise was my third choice. And unfortunately, no one from Hawaii wanted to go to Moorhead, Minnesota. So that didn't come through. No one from the mountainous Colorado wanted to come to Minnesota to ski our flat icy hills. That fell through. But Boise State, they, Idaho is desperate for special ed teachers. Can you imagine? <laughs> Who needs a special ed teacher in Idaho? <laughs> so I got a full scholarship on student special, you know, Student exchange. How many have done student exchange or heard of student exchange? Right? So I got to come out here in 78, and it was the biggest ruby slipper thing that ever happened to me. First, my dad was, of course, you're not going anywhere. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got accepted, and I got all the money I need for it, see? Blah, blah, blah. Can't stop me. So then he buys me in this Buick. It falls apart in Bismarck, Moorhead, Bismarck. And you might think, God, you know, my dad is an accountant at this nice car lot. He should have had a great car for me. No, he wanted me to fail at Bismarck. I would say F word, but I'm not. Turns out Bismarck was the only place on my way from Moorhead, Minnesota to Boise, where I had a friend. And I got to spend the night at her house. I mean, we'd been friends since grade school. And then I took off to Boise. And of course, I went down to Utah for a little while because I got lost. <laughs> yes, yes. All my Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts have said, Lori, you get lost, just sit down. Ooh, where am I going? <laughs> it's just my brain. So I end up in Boise, Idaho. And like any 19 year old, it's 1978, and I'm 64 now, so it's lots of years. But it's 1978, I got my stereo, which my boyfriend Jim gave me. I'm married to him for 42 years, so it worked out. <laughs> Never mind that. <laughs> but I had my stereo in the back seat. I had my skis on the top because, of course, you know, you got to go somewhere where you can ski. And boys, he only had 15 miles up to the ski resort. Oh my gosh, I thought I was in heaven. And I. I drove into town, and I don't know if you guys remember what Boise looked like back then, but when you got off Broadway, you could go down right before you hit the stadium, 
there was a 7-Eleven and a garden shop. And here comes, I'm sitting on my car, the blue Buick with the new engine from Bismarck. And here come Harry and Mary Black. They weren't Harry and Mary Black then, they were just dating and Harry was flirting with me. <laughs> but now they've been married as long as me and Jim. And they said, hey, they looked at my Minnesota plates and they said, oh my gosh, you can stay at my house until you find a place to stay. Holy moly. I thought that was the most awesome thing ever. And so I stayed at Mary's house for the two weeks it took me to find an apartment up at that Bromback Apartments where the old army barracks used to be. 650 a month, all utilities paid. And, and Harry and Mary floated me down the Boise River on the, I am, on the first day, on the first day I was here, I got to float down the Boise River with Harry and Mary Black, and they are my youngest son's godparents. <laughs> That's my story. I clicked my feet and I found all these lovely people. Well, I'm still surprised it took you that long to put on those uh, those sandals there, Lori. <laughs> I did break the microphone in the process, you're right. This is the kind of night we're having. Yeah! All right, next slammer coming to the stage. Please welcome Sarah John. Woo! Hi. Um, unlike Lori, um, I'm a very good liar. And <laughs> I work in PR, so yeah, or mar marketing, marketing and PR. Um, so when I first heard this, uh, the theme for tonight, um, what came to mind was um, a little bit of a story about my childhood and my upbringing. So I'm not going to be able to see people in the audience anymore. Um, but has anybody heard of Malad, Idaho? Right. That's where I'm from. And if you know about it, then you probably know that it's a little bit um, on the conservative side. Um, just a little bit. Um, I grew up there, and my parents, um, I'm not sure how they ended up choosing to live there. Um, I have these two lovely parents. Um, neither are deadbeat. So grateful, <laughs> but um, they uh, but they did raise us in Malad, which is sort of questionable <laughs> to begin with. Um, but I was raised in um, in Malad, and my parents are really liberal, and um, and I really don't know why they chose to raise their family there. But a little bit of background on um, my family: um, I have there's four kids in the family. So my brother being the oldest, and then a sister, myself, and then a younger sister. And um, one other thing about Malad is that um, it is heavily populated with uh, religion, and one specific religion. And um, 
uh, that religion is Mormonism. And uh, my family's not Mormon. So we were already outsiders. In fact, um, both sides of my grandparents owned a bar in Malad. And that is when you know that you are different than everybody else. <laughs> but um, my mom and dad, um, raised all four of us there and I think like each of us had our different ways of um, feeling like we fit in and so um, my brother fell into um, some he fell into some addiction um, pretty severe addiction he found a group of friends that um, that accepted him and um, and a certain group of people, like the majority of people, did not accept him. And then there was a little bit of a, like, a red mark, like a scarlet letter on us as a family. So my older sister decided that she would do the exact opposite, and she got baptized Mormon. And then I realized that I could maybe be a good actress and pretend to be to fit in with people in Malad. Um, so that's exactly what I did. So I wasn't joking when I said that um, I could be a pretty good liar. Um, but, um, but basically, I ended up um, uh, doing all of the things that I'm not sure that you're supposed to do if you're not Mormon, like go baptizing for the dead um, and get a patriarchal blessing, um, graduate from seminary. Um, <laughs> I did all of those things, and um, at one point, our um, stake president, who was a seminary teacher, um, I danced through high school, through actually my whole life through college, and um, our dance coach in high school um, gave us a very important lesson. She told us that um, we were still virgins if we gave our boyfriend a blowjob. And that's really crucial to learn when you're in high school, you know? <laughs> So, um, so anyways, I learned that, and um, I guess maybe because I wasn't Mormon, um, the seminary teacher called me in and asked me, like, if um, the dance coach had taught us about oral sex, and I said no, she told us about blowjobs. <laughs> I didn't know that they were the same thing, to be fair. Um, I was pretty innocent, so I was like, my mom's like, I can't believe you said blowjob to the stake of president. And I was like, mm -mm. I mean, if you explained things better to me than I would have known this, they were the same thing, but I didn't. So it's clearly her fault. Um, anyway, I, um, I, put on a, I put on a very good role. And throughout my um, entire life, I've sort of like looked back at um, my experience in Malad and had a little bit of resentment towards the people there for one, treating my brother terribly and blaming them for like some issues that he created himself um, and some decisions that he made and then resenting my sister for choosing to become a part of that population. And probably who I should have been the most mad at was myself for putting on this really dramatic show of being um, sort of Mormon and fitting in, I don't know. Um, I think my little sister found the best balance um, in that she was just herself. And she never um, felt the need to put on a show or lie um, or, I don't know, I guess just find a way to fit in because she always felt more comfortable in her skin. 
And um, I always envied her for that, for just feeling so comfortable and um, knowing who she was and not feeling the need to be somebody else or put on a show for anybody. Um, but during the pandemic, I had, um, and throughout like my whole duration of being like living in Boise and, um, and I'm in my 40s now, it's been a long time since I lived in Malad, I went to college and then I moved to Boise, but um, I think that um, during the pandemic, I found like a lot of peace in going home, like as a total extrovert that was not able to be social anymore. I started spending weeks at a time with my parents, which I hadn't done since I was in high school. And I just started to find like a place where like home actually wasn't as bad as I had created in my mind. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah John, woman with two parents, <laughs> lucky bitch. Please, please join me in welcoming your final slammer of the evening, Nicole And you wrote your address on here, but I can't read your name and your phone number. Maybe we have to, maybe I have to go, maybe I'll give her a call. <laughs> Nicole Force. Oh, Nicole Force, hi. Nice to see you. <laughs> How's this, is this good? Yeah, that's great, thanks. Um, thank you, Lori, for telling your story about Ruby Slippers. Um, <laughs> because my story is also about myself. <laughs> Um, I kind of wish now that I had brought a story about my mom or, um, you know, something like as deep as what I heard here tonight. Um, but I suppose this is deep in its own way. Um, there was a story that was told to me about an important man who had lost all of his clothing and belongings and cash um, when he was traveling in India. Um, in the Rajasthani state, he discovered jodhpurs, which are the original polo pants, and um, he returned to England with them, where they found they were a competitive advantage as well as so fashionable that um, women like Queen Elizabeth II and Coco Chanel made them famous. This story was told to me with a sparkling eye cast to my son and me as we had landed in New Delhi without any of our luggage. Our luggage was the most lost <laughs> of all. They had no clue. <laughs> it was gonna be a while. Um, <clears throat> so here we arrive in the middle of the night um, looking like ghosts and um, no clothes and bank cards that don't work in their post-COVID world. Um, I, literally, it was like being dropped in a foreign country um, with, with nothing. So they took us anyways. <laughs> um, in hindsight, there weren't a lot of other Westerners to take, and um, the borders had just barely opened, and they had missed tourism dearly. Um, fortunately for me, my husband had gotten um, rooms at the Imperial um, where he had stayed previously for work before COVID. And um, that's where they took us in. And they gave us kurtas, which are white pajamas, so we'd have something to wear that night and while we were getting our clothes cleaned the next day. And they said they'd wait for the bank. <laughs> um, anyways, 
walking around the hotel hallways as the only white woman there wearing a combination of kurtas and the linen slacks that I had arrived in, I must have looked like an initiate ready for holy. Um, everywhere we went, people wanted to take a picture of us. Uh, <laughs> it started at the step well of Agrisindi Beli um, with this, this really sweet, cute little girl who honestly was probably there to um, hawk or panhandle. Um, but she looked up at me and very um, sweetly pulled out this old, dusty word from her vocabulary, forgotten from almost three years ago, selfie? <laughs> <laughs> I felt so bad that I didn't take that picture with her right at that moment because I didn't really know um, how much it meant. So I asked my husband later about this and he said that he had occasionally been asked for selfies when he was there before and that it wasn't a big deal, um, it wasn't a hard thing to do and it meant so much to some people. Um, he showed me how to get chummy. He said, just lean in a little and smile like you're really good friends, they'll love it. Say namaste when you're done. So I tried doing this thing. I tried becoming a people person. <laughs> and um, as we continued on to Jodhpur, um, me, the only one now, without any of my luggage or clothes, <laughs> going to the city of pants, um, <laughs> a selfie here or there suddenly became a phenomena. Now, I did get some Indian clothing, and I felt a little conspicuous as we got to Jodhpur. Um, there hadn't been a lot of tourists there for a long time, and I was still wearing, um, I was wearing exercise tights, aka yoga pants, <laughs> and a women's kurti, and my old beat-up tennis shoes that I liked to fly in. And they were kind of embarrassing. It's a more formal society. So um, I switched those out for Indian sandals and picked up some new eyeliner skills so I could blend in. <clears throat> we took a lot of selfies, um, and everyone got in the photo. People would say things like, it's been so long since we've had tourists here and um, when are more tourists coming? And we haven't had white people here yet. And do you like President Trump or President Biden? <laughs> they knew a lot about our politics, come to find out. <laughs> so I said my preference <laughs> and then added, um, it's the discussion that's most important, not necessarily perfect agreement. Hmm, maybe, they said. Well, selfie? <laughs> Uh, I finally got my luggage, and at that point I had to decide, as we traveled down south into the very hot weather, if I wanted to keep some of my western clothes or retain some of the Indian clothes that really were innovative for heat. So I was pretty mixed by the time we traveled down to Fatipur Sikri. I noticed as we went further south that um, there was fewer families at these tourist sites and that um, there was more younger educated people, some professionals, and we were on a packed bus going to the monument and my conversation failed. Did I mention I'm an introvert? <laughs> this did not come naturally. Um, so finally, after like, I can't even talk to this person about anything interesting, I look over to this young man and say, hey, you want a selfie? <laughs> selfie! <laughs> the whole bus behind us lit up. <laughs> Everyone was selfieing. <laughs> so, um, 
So generally speaking, I found that um, most of the people that were roughly of our demographic loved American culture. Um, there was white people on all of the billboards when we got over there. Um, however, there were some places that we went that I realized that wasn't the case. There were a couple places that we went that probably were a little dangerous. So after this group selfie on the bus, I was a little wary when um, a young woman pulled me aside in a dark corner of the monument. And, um, but I listened to see what she had to say. Um, and she said, why are you taking all of these photos? Do you like India? Are you making fun? <clears throat> and I said, I love India. I just got my yoga teacher training certificate, and um, it's so beautiful here. And look, and I started showing her all of the selfies. These people are happy. They're happy to have selfies. We had about 150 selfies in my phone at that point in time after a week of being there. <clears throat> and she said, then why are you here? And suddenly I realized that um, that this important conversation was just too big. This was the most serious thing I'd had to talk about since I came to India. And I realized it was too important for a smiling facade and additionally too important for my shyness to come across as being cold or as not caring. And so I told her quite seriously and she saw me now for who I was, a serious person, which I had pretended not to be. Um, I said, I saw a movie during COVID and how the invaders came down from the north and how they killed all of the men at Fate Persecre and what the women had to do here. Spoiler alert, they immolated themselves to avoid rape and being enslaved. And since then, I just wanted to come to this site and see where they had lived and touch this place. I wanted to see the monument to the queens. And she knew exactly which movie I was talking about. And she named it for me because I'm a dork and I can't say it. <laughs> um, and then we cried a little bit together. And then we stood side to side and it's the best selfie. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Nicole. Nicole, there are white people on all the billboards here too. <laughs> it's weird that we have that in common with India. Um, you guys, that's our show. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel a little bit more Mormon after this as well. Um, we're going to do some announcements now. Um, so here I go. Um, sometimes our musician underscores this. Randy, I don't know if you planned for that or not. If you did, you can come on up and I don't know, hum along or whatever it is. Um, it, you're welcome to, she left already. She's like, she's like halfway to Tennessee or something. Um, all right, I talked about the story subscribers, so you can do that now if you wanna come see our shows, if you wanna come see our uh, Battle of the Bands show in September, um, our, that's our Slammer of the Year show, and then two shows, everything, story, okay, story sub, you got it. Story sub, four, four, three, two, one. Um, Stories come from the land as well as its people, and I want to acknowledge that in addition to being a place used for incarcerated people, that we are on the traditional lands of the Shoshone Bannock tribe. <laughs> story Story Late Night is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission of the Arts. 
actually also the Idaho Legislature and the National Endowment for the Arts. So remember, you can listen to our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. You can go to storystorynot.org. We also have a radio show, um, blah, 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 blah. And um, yeah, thank you to our crew, uh, the tardy Stephen Baldessari. (laughs) This is your new name now. Thank you to our musical guest, Randy Anderson. Big round of applause for her. Thank you to our photographer, Christina Birkenbein. You can find those photos um, from tonight's show by following our Facebook or Instagram. Thank you to our volunteers and our volunteer coordinator, Natalie DeJosia. We would love some help with our upcoming shows. If you're interested in volunteering, you just check people in, and then you get to see the show for free. So if you're interested, please go see her after um, on your way out and sign up for that. Uh, thank you to our board of directors. Thank you to our story subscribers. Thank you to our producing artistic director who's not here tonight for the first time in like six years, which is probably why everything went so wrong. Jody Eichelberger. Let's big round of applause for all of those people who make this happen. And thanks to the old pen for hosting us. So we will we'll see you in September. Battle of the Bands. Rock on. Oh wait, I was gonna announce who I chose for Slammer of the Year. I think I'm gonna regret this, but I'm gonna go with no shoes, Lori, Lori care for you. I'm just taking one of the wild card. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find us. Thanks to guest host Beth Norton and musical guest Randy Anderson. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 